Announcements. First of all, don't forget that Saturday night you're going to lose an hour of sleep, so go to bed early and set your clocks ahead because of daylight savings time. And then the Chafer Conference begins on Monday at 1.30. I think we may still need some volunteers. We need volunteers. No, we're set on volunteers. That's great. But we do need cookies and canned drinks, Coke, Diet Coke, Dr. Pepper, Diet Dr. Pepper, things like that. And then the men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting is scheduled for March the 20, Saturday morning, March the 21st. Okay. So, I think that just about covers it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We all need to make sure that we are ready to worship through the study of God's word, and that means that we are to be in right relationship with the Lord, walking in the light by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and so that means that we need to uh, keep short accounts and to confess sin whenever we're aware of sin in our life so that we are we can continue and maintain our forward momentum in the spiritual life. So we will have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you forgive us our sins because of Christ's death on the cross. That when we confess, it is simply a reminder to us and to you of what Christ has done for us, that our sin has been dealt with, paid for. We are instantly forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness. We're thankful that we have this uh, cleansing and that we do not have to get mired in guilt and guilt feelings and and remorse and all of the other things that produced by legalism, and that we have forgiveness and that we can have a close rapport and walk with you. Father, we pray as we study tonight, continuing in Second Peter, that you would help us to understand these things and that the things that we study, that God the Holy Spirit would use it to illuminate our thinking, to bring to our mind implications of your word for our own thinking and our own lives, that we may apply these principles in a way that you will use to transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles to that unused epistle that we haven't seen in a month, Second Peter. One month ago today, four weeks ago today, we had our previous lesson, which was Lesson 30. Today we're going to review a little bit, add a few new things, go forward a little bit, but we're in Lesson 31, and then next week, of course, is the Chafer uh, Conference, and so we will not have Bible class, so we're going to have to wait at least two weeks before we have Lesson 32, so we've sort of lost a little continuity. And we have to go back and 
put ourselves back in the place where we were in terms of our thinking so that we can we can go forward. Since several things have taken place in the last month in all of our lives, that and especially in mine, as I went back and reviewed notes, I added a few things here or there, tweaked a few things to bring a few more things into focus, which uh, you will see as we make progress. So I have entitled this study tonight, The Tyranny of Relativism and the Freedom of Absolute Truth. That's really the background in this last part of Second Peter chapter 1, where Peter is contrasting the light, the illumination from God's Word versus the uh, pagan myths, the fables, the stories that men invent in order to find meaning and purpose in life because they have rejected the truth of God's word. And so they have adopted a completely false narrative to explain life and to explain our purpose, and in that they are enslaving themselves in the tyranny of relativism. So we see in our passage... Going back a few verses to verse 12 where we get this introduction and the way I have translated this, Peter says, therefore I will not neglect to remind you constantly. We need that constant reminder. You do, I do, every one of us does because the sin nature constantly tries to uh, cloak and disguise and suppress the truth in our soul and get us to think that it's perfectly okay to follow the sin nature's dictates. So we have to be constantly reminded about these things. And Peter says, even though you have known them and have been made stable, it is the truth of God's word that stabilizes us, that gives us a uh, a sense of being upright, stable, grounded in the midst of things that are unexpected. And we have so many unexpected things. We thought at the beginning of the year that it would certainly be an interesting year. We were just beginning to hear a few little rumbles about this new virus in China, but we knew it was going to be an election year, and with all of the candidates and everything, we knew that this would be quite an entertaining, distracting, and distressing uh, year as we look at the collapse of the American culture as as it is mired in uh, relativism and rebellion against God. But we have stability that no matter what happens, we as believers ought to be living on in Scripture and not living in panic palace because there are these things happening all around us. So we have been made stable. It's a perfect tense. It refers to a past action that results continue into the present, but we're made stable by means of the truth using the Greek preposition in, which in this case I think has an instrumental sense, by means of the truth, which you now have. It's translated this present truth, but it clearly has the idea of this truth you now have. So the emphasis here is on truth, which opens this closing section of the of the introduction in verse 12 and goes down to the end of the chapter, which focuses on how God's Word has been revealed to us. And so we see a contrast 
in the world. Relativism is not something new. Relativism goes back to the Garden of Eden, just like every other sin. Uh, we may not think of it that way, but it is in, in the temptation that Satan in the guise of the serpent gave to Eve, he is telling her, well, God's not right. There's, there's other truth. And you can make up your own truth. You too can be a God and you can create your own truth. So it is the offer of, of relativism in every form in the Garden of Eden. But we see this emphasis in Scripture, and I went through these verses the last time, but it's important to remind us that we have the truth. The world out there tells us that we're narrow-minded, that we're bigoted, that we are forcing this on other people, that we're evil and wicked because we want everybody to conform to the way we think. And that's not true. We want everybody to conform to the way God thinks, and we had to do it because that is reality. And if you don't, then you don't have reality. You make up your own reality, but you're living in a fantasy world. Jesus said in John 8, 32, and you shall know the truth. This is a verse that is emblazoned in many places where they think that the truth refers to whatever it is they have come up with as a result of science, as a result of empiricism, as a result of rationalism in the, in the technical sense of a philosophy of life based on logic and reason. And they think that's what sets us free. But Jesus uses the term the truth contextually in the Gospel of John to refer to what God has revealed in the Bible. So we have the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free us from the bondage and the tyranny of the sin nature. It frees us from the bondage of darkness, living in darkness, and puts us into light where we see reality for what it is. John fourteen seventeen tells us that in addition to the word of God, which is the truth, we have the spirit of truth. This emphasizes the role of the Holy Spirit in giving us the truth through the process of inspiration. Inspiration is the English word that is used to translate the Greek word in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's a compound word. The first part of the word is theos. The word is theopneustos, but the second part is neustos, P-N-U-O-S-T-O-S. That's from pneuma. So pneuma is the is a word translated spirit for the Holy Spirit. So it talks about the breath of God, which I think is an allusion to the way God breathes out his word. It is through God the Holy Spirit, which is what we'll see in verses 20 and 21 of this passage. So it is the role of God the Holy Spirit to reveal God's Word and to uh, take it through the process of, of giving it to the prophets and the apostles to write the Scripture. It is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you, and he's talking to his disciples here, this isn't talking to you, the church, through the disciples. It is talking to specifically to the disciples. You know him because he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, the will be in you is a future tense. That talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit will permanently indwell them 
as it does all church-age members after the day of Pentecost. John fifteen twenty six. but when the Helper comes, the Helper is the Parakletos, that's another title for God the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, that refers to the uh, 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 descent of God the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But when the Paraclete comes whom I shall send to you from the Father. It is the Son and the Father each send the Spirit. For I shall send to you from the Father the Spirit of the truth. And in every one of these cases, the article is there indicating, it doesn't always indicate the distinctiveness of the noun, but in this case it does. The Spirit of the truth, because he's the one who reveals the truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Then we have John sixteen thirteen. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come after the day of Pentecost, he will guide you into all truth. Now that's talking to the disciples again because they will be the vehicles for telling people about Jesus and his ministry and what he taught. That's, I do not think this is talking directly or indirectly to church age believers other than we do have the word that's the implication because if they have written and inscripturated uh, the word for us we can then teach it but he's talking about the role of the holy spirit in guiding them and directing them as they write scripture he's not talking to all believers that were somehow guided into all truth in some mystical way apart from the written word of God. He is talking to the disciples. Now that's a difficult hermeneutical issue or issue of interpretation all through this because at some places when Jesus says you or you all, he's talking to the disciples and only to the disciples. In other places in the upper room discourse, he's talking to all of the church through the disciples. So it gets difficult sometimes to ascertain whether this is only to them or to all of us through them, and you only can answer that question because of the way we understand the rest of the Scripture. And Jesus goes on to say that he will not speak on his own authority. So you don't have independence in in the Godhead. That's interesting, a thought just came to my mind because I've said this for many years, taught this on the definition of the kenosis, that, that uh, one way that that definition has been formulated, a way that you have heard many times, I think it originated with a definition Dr. Walford gave at the seminary, that Jesus in the, in the hypostatic union would not act independently of the Father. There's a problem with that. Jesus before he was in hypostatic union, never acted independently of the Father. And here's a, an, an analogy or a pattern with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak independently of the Father. There is no independence of the members of the Trinity from one another. They never act independently of one another. They are interdependent, and they are a, a one. They are a perfect unity even though there are three distinct persons. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. 
So there, he, the Holy Spirit is not autonomously communicating whatever he thinks people need to know in Revelation. He is under the authority and direction of God the Father. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Genuine predictive prophecy. Then in what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer, this is the true Lord's prayer, not the disciples' prayer of of uh, Matthew 6, but this is the true Lord's prayer where he is praying on behalf of the church. And he prays to the Father, sanctify them by uh, your truth. And it's the truth again, so even though that doesn't make great grammatical sense in English, I want to emphasize the fact that the the article is there. In Greek, you if you have a pronoun before a noun, if the noun is definite, you don't need to put the article there. If the article is there, it's for strong emphasis. And so that's what we find throughout the Gospel of John. Sanctify means to set apart to the service of God. That is a, de- a way of speaking about our spiritual life, our Christian growth. It is through the truth. Sanctify them by means of your truth. Thy word is truth. So here again, talking about the word of God, the written inscripturated uh, word of God, revelation of God. Verse 19, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself. This is what Jesus is doing at the cross, setting himself apart for the mission that God has given him to die on the cross for our sins. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified by means of the truth. So this is as strong as it gets. The Bible believes that there is one truth, and that is God's truth, that there are not multiple versions of the truth that is internally uh, internally contradictory. The power of the word, it, notice at the end I didn't put the truth here. That's because since the article is in the previous mention in 17, it picks it up and, and it is assumed to apply to this noun as well. The power of the word isn't in some kind of mystical power so that you can hold up your Bible against the vampires and they'll flee from you. It's not that kind of a thing. It's because it is God's word. It is the truth. Because it is true and it is God's reality, it has power in our lives. Second Peter 1.16, Peter contrasts what the world has with the truth. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what we have here is this contrast with the truth. We have fables and legends and all sorts of uh, irrational ways of describing reality. And we see this all around us. Often I I get have people ask me questions like, how can these people do that? It's so obvious. You're you're a boy or you're a girl. You know, if you don't know, go in the bathroom, look at look in your pants, you know, you'll tell. That's what it is. It's objective. How can people say there's ninety different genders? Because they're suppressing truth. They're in a fantasy world. They have lost touch with any sense of objective truth. 
They are not rational. You cannot explain irrationalism logically. It doesn't work. It's, if it's by definition, it's irrational. It is not subject to logical explanation. And so you have, we have in our culture, a host of leaders who are irrational living in a fantasy world. And we wonder what in the world has gone on here? Well, they've lost complete touch with reality. They have lost reality. They don't even have a passing acquaintance with reality. They've been divorced from reality for so long that they would know it if it slapped them in the face. They have been suppressing it and suppressing it and suppressing it all their life in terms of the spiritual realities that now that is normative for all other realities because all other, all other things in life always derive from our ultimate view of God. Everything in life is driven by our view of God. So... Peter is saying, we didn't, we're not operating on this human viewpoint system of making it up as we go along. So I asked the question last time, how do we know that something is true? First of all, because it's revealed in God's Word. God's Word defines truth, so that's the standard. That is the platinum standard. We evaluate all experience by the Word of God. That's what makes us a biblicist. We evaluate things by the Word of God. We do not evaluate the Word of God by the experiences that we have had. That's what separates us from the entire charismatic movement. That's what uh, separates us from about 90% of evangelicalism today, even though they verbally affirm that the Bible is inerrant and infallible and sufficient They don't know what that means, and as soon as they run into some kind of experience, they immediately use that to to evaluate the Word of God. So we know from this passage, too, it is true because it's the revealed, it's the prophetic Word of God, and secondly, because it was confirmed through what they saw and heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. God always provides evidence for the veracity of His Word. There's no such thing as some private experience like Muhammad had or Joseph Smith had that they can go out and say, this is what God said to do. God always gives some sort of confirmatory evidence because it's objective reality. So I created this chart we had the last time that revelation on the left originates from the one true living God. It's a voice from heaven that is referred to in verse 17, that Peter talks about they heard the voice of God saying of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It doesn't come from the will of man. That's 121. The Holy Spirit moved those men, and they weren't moved by their own uh, imagination. There's a reference to objective light in 119, and then the confirmatory evidence of hearing God's voice in one seventeen and 18. That's contrasted to the mythology of the unbeliever, the pagan mythology even of believers. It originates in human thought. That's why they constantly say, well, the Bible is just a product of man, because they don't know any different. All they have is the opinion of man. And so if everything else that they've experienced is the opinion of man, they have to say that's what the Bible is. They reject the truth completely. Second, they have irrational concepts. They talk about things like a true myth. 
it's an oxymoron of the first order to two words that contradict each other. It's factitious. That's another word that they use to describe certain events in Scripture. Like the uh, theology professor over here at Houston Baptist University who rejects the literal historical fact of those who were resurrected and came out of the grave in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. He says, well, that didn't really happen. This is sort of myth. This is just factitious. It didn't really happen. And so it ultimately leads to some sort of polytheism. You have many gods or many authorities rather than the monotheism of Scripture. And it always leads to a historical view that is cyclical rather than linear. Only Judaism, the Old Testament biblical Judaism, introduced linear thinking that history is going somewhere and has purpose, and that you and I, because we are a micro-history within the macro-history of God's creation, and we have value and purpose because we're created in the image of likeness of God, so that everybody has purpose. If you feel discouraged, feel depressed, you look in the mirror and you say, you're created in the image of God. God has a specific purpose for you. You are saved because God loves you personally, and he died for you personally, sent his son to die for you on the cross so that you can be prepared for eternity, so you have meaning, value, and purpose whether you feel like it or not. And there are many days when most of us don't feel like it because it's not based on feeling. So, in terms of truth versus myth, I said that revelation may be confirmed by evidence, what is seen and what is heard. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead in the minds of the disciples. He didn't just rise from the dead in the minds of people. That's how Hollywood represents it in most movies about the life of Jesus. He rose from the dead objectively, and the disciples and 500 others all saw him, touched him, watched him walk through walls, heard him, knew that he was an objective, objectively raised from the dead uh, person. So revelation is confirmed through what is seen and heard. It is not proved by what is seen and heard. It is confirmed by what is seen and heard. That's the language we have in the text here. Experience is evaluated by revelation. Revelation is not evaluated or interpreted uh, from experience. That is the biggest problem. We interpret the Bible on the basis of what's familiar to us, which is our own experience. So biblical truth is never in a vacuum. When God speaks or acts, it's confirmed through evidence. God does not expect us to make a leap of faith. Leap of faith is the language of Kierkegaard and existentialism. Every time I, every now and then I hear unlearned Christians say, well, we just have to take, take it on a leap of faith. Never, if you are a biblicist, will you take a leap of faith. Faith is a form of knowledge. You believe it, and it's true. It's more true because, you, because of God, God's word. God said it. Remember, there used to be a little bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. The problem with that saying was that that settles it is the result of me believing it. That's subjectivism. God said it, that settles it. Now the issue is, do you believe it or not? But it's settled because God said it. So, let's think about our thinking a minute. 
this always gets into some areas of philosophy, but this is very important to understand to understand what's going on around us today. First of all, we have these categories that have been developed. They're theological as well as philosophical. Philosophy uses different language, but it's talking about the same thing. The first is ultimate reality. The technical term is metaphysics. Meta means beyond. Physics refers to the physical world. So it's beyond what we can see, taste, touch, or feel. Ultimate reality, metaphysical reality. In human viewpoint, reality is whatever you want it to be. Once you've rejected God as the ultimate reality, see, when you study metaphysics, what's the first thing you study? You go to like I did, go to the University of St. Thomas, you go to a philosophy department, you take a course in metaphysics, what's the first thing you study? Arguments for the existence of God. Metaphysics is just all about whether or not God exists. So reality, if you reject God, then reality is whatever you want it to be. You just make it up. This is Romans 18 and following. This is a passage that we just need to review every now and then and remind ourselves of what's going on in, in our lives sometimes and in the world a lot. For the wrath of God, the judgment of God in time, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And these men are are, are identified as those who are truth suppressors. Sort of like a tongue depressor, but they're a truth suppressor. They are holding down truth. See, that's what happens when you get a tongue depressor. You go to the doctor and he takes out this balsa wood thing and he holds your tongue down. It's the idea, a suppressor, that word means to hold something down, to push it down. So, uh, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not a righteous thing that they're doing. They're doing something that is evil. It is unrighteous. Because what may be known about God is manifest in them. So every atheist knows in his heart of hearts, in the deep recesses of his mind, he knows that God exists. It is in him, for God has shown it to them. And God doesn't make mistakes. You and I can mess it up when we're trying to show somebody something, but God doesn't mess it up. It is very, very clear. They know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. But they keep pushing it down, burying it in a deep, dark hole somewhere in the sub, sub, sub cellar of their thinking. Why? The answer is in verse 24 tells us why. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. See, this is explaining how they know it within them because God made it clear in his creation. Every molecule in God's creation can be turned over, and it doesn't say made in Japan, and it doesn't say made in China. It says made by God. Every molecule, every atom in all of God's creation is stamped with that saying, made by God. And every person who sees it knows it, even though they immediately reject it. So his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God, they, they are held accountable. Every person is individually held accountable. That's divine institution number one. Personal responsibility to God. Communism, Marxism, socialism tries to subvert the first divine institution and deny it. 
Romans one twenty one goes on to say, because although they knew God, see, they know God. There's no doubt in their mind, if they were honest and could peel back all the layers of truth suppression, they know God exists. They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. They're ingrates. Every unbeliever is an ingrate. You, as an unbeliever, before you were saved, were an ingrate. You were not grateful to God because you rejected God. They, they were not thankful but became futile or empty in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. It doesn't matter how many PhDs, EDDs, uh, D-theologies, doctorate of theologies or whatever they have after their name, they are foolish and futile if they've rejected God. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed. Here's the key word. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. This is idolatry. But we have people today that have, they have idols of the mind. They are philosophical systems. They are pleasures from their sin nature. They are the, fulfilling the lust patterns of their sin nature. They changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. In the ancient idolatrous systems, so many of the gods and goddesses represented various sins, and they were all fairly sinful. Romans one twenty four. therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. But the key verse is verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. It's either truth or lie. It's either truth or myth, truth or fable. It's either the truth of God's word as he said it, or it, it, you're just making it up as you go along and you're living in a fantasy world. So they exchanged truth of God for a fantasy and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So that's what paganism is. It worships whatever they want to worship. They redefine reality and have whatever God they want. So in the ultimate reality, in metaphysical reality, they've got metaphysical relativism. They're going to have any kind of God they want. And it can be one God today and one God tomorrow, one religion today, one tomorrow. It, it, it's fluid, but everything, ultimate reality is relative to what I want. And you have your reality and I have my reality. And if your reality works for you, great. My reality works for me. That shows the emptiness, the vacuousness of, of pragmatism. Second area built on metaphysics is knowledge. Knowledge for the unbeliever, is unknowable, ultimately. He's destroyed all possibility of truly knowing anything because he's rejected truth to begin with. He's just, and he ends up saying, well, everybody's entitled to their own set of facts. It doesn't matter what your DNA says, what your chromosomes say. What matters is that if you think you're a girl and you were born biologically a boy, then you can go make yourself a girl. You, you can make up your own facts, your own reality. The fancy term for this would be epistemological relativism. Knowledge relates to epistemology, the study of knowledge. So it's epistemo epistemological relativism or just the relativism of knowledge. You have your truth, I have my truth. You live it your way, I'll live it my way, we'll all be happy. No, we won't. The reason we won't is because if somebody comes along and says your truth is wrong, they become the enemy, 
and they're evil, and they have to be suppressed. And that's what every, all the unbelievers are doing is suppressing truth. So this destroys the possibility of knowing anything. If you not, can't know one thing, you can't know anything else. And so everything becomes relative and uncertain. Then what's built on knowledge, once we know that we can know something, is we develop our area of, of values, morals, ethics. Politics grows out of this area of, of philosophy, how we are to get along with each other, organize ourselves, and rule ourselves. So ethical and moral relativism comes in and says, well, there's no absolutes. Everyone has their own set of rights and wrongs. So you not only get into ethical and moral relativism, but where this leads is what we're seeing today. You're not hearing a lot of people talk about it, but it is legal relativism. And we see some examples of this, but where it really comes down and it's very, very nasty is in the courtroom when you're trying to, as a lawyer, present a case to a jury because the jury doesn't believe in absolute reality or absolute truth, and they're told by usually the defense that everything is relative, and we're not here to establish truth. We're just here to uh, try to prevent the law or get, let this guy get free or however they want to put it. We have ethical relativism, moral relativism, and then the last stage in philosophy is called aesthetics, which has to do with beauty. And we don't do a good job as evangelicals developing a theology of beauty. But beauty resides in the character and the person of God. So that when God sets out to make something beautiful, there's a standard that he is using that is, comes from his own character. When God says in when he is making things that something is good, it fits a pattern or a standard. And so when you come to things that are in the world of the arts, literature, the uh, physical visual arts, music, all of these things, there are absolutes. If we say there are no absolutes of beauty in any of these areas, that you have your view and I have my view and we're, we're in aesthetic relativism, you're denying that, you're, you're basically saying there is an area of God's creation that has nothing to do with God's essence. Think about that. That's why we have these issues with music. We're going to talk about that. Scott will talk about it when we get into the conference next week. That's why I make such a big deal about it. Because the claim in contemporary Christian worship is that the music doesn't matter. Because in their view, music is neutral. Well, if music is neutral, the metaphysical implication of that is that it has nothing to do with God. There's something in God's creation that is not related to his character and is not corrupted by sin. That is a blasphemous assertion. Now, we may not know exactly what that standard is, but to argue that there's no absolute ethical standard is just, just blasphemy. Beauty is not subjective. The idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder is a post-Kantian reality. The Greeks 
had perfect standards for what made someone beautiful. It had to do with absolutes of proportion, how a, a person a person's skull was shaped, what the ratios were between uh, the length of the face and the width of the face, uh, what was more pleasing, what was less pleasing. There were objective standards. They understood that. So what we have here is we have moral, rel- we have metaphysical relativism. Ultimate reality can be whatever you want it to be. We have the relativism of knowledge. Truth can be whatever you want it to be. We have moral and ethical and legal relativism so that right and wrong can be whatever you want it to be. And we have aesthetic relativism. That, we, we've covered all the bases now in our culture. And the result is that relativists must hate and despise those who hold to absolutes and because they are truth suppressors. They have to hate anyone who says that there is an absolute and they might be wrong. And recently, Todd Starnes, who is a reporter and writes a number of things on religion for Fox News, Todd Starnes last Friday, I think it was at the CPAC conference, was interviewed and he said the LGBTQ movement doesn't just want to be allowed to do what they want to do. They want to get the Bible completely out of the culture and get rid of every Christian and to destroy Christianity. They're truth suppressors. He's absolutely right. There can be no compromise with the LGBTQ movement. Now, that doesn't mean we go out and we be judgmental and legalistic and all of this other stuff because that sin relates to every other sin. And I always say, I don't have a problem with what somebody does in terms of sin. I have a problem when they start trying to force me to say it's okay because that's going to violate what the Scripture says. But we're all sinners, and we have to deal with other sinners in grace just like we want to be dealt with in grace. But what happens when we say that there's absolutes is that we are going to become the enemy, and they will want to suppress us so that they can suppress the truth that comes out of our mouth. And this is the tyranny of relativism. And that's where we are. We're living in a culture where relativism is the tyrant and it seeks to destroy everyone that doesn't agree with relativism with its relativism with its metaphysical epistemological ethical or aesthetic relativism it is a hate for anyone who says there are absolutes and we need to figure out what those absolutes are and conform to them because that's reality now that's what uh, that's what Peter is getting into because where he's headed with this is that there are these false prophets and false teachers. And the false teachers are coming along and they are offering another reality that is contradictory to the truth. So in the first chapter, he's establishing the reality of this truth. And part of the evidence he marshals is what happened when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I skipped past some of this last time. I wanted to go back and Uh, bring this out this time. When Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, takes uh, uh, Peter, James, and John with him, then they, as they come up, a voice comes out of the heavens and announces, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. 
interrupts Peter because as the Lord has been transfigured and he sees the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to build these, these tabernacles. He, he understands a connection. The, the Feast of Tabernacles relates to celebrating the beginning of the kingdom, and that's what he is talking about. But he's anticipating things. He's jumping the gun because the kingdom's not coming. And so God the Father interrupts him and says, listen to Jesus. This is my beloved son. But the phraseology that he uses and that he used at the baptism of Christ is language that comes right out of Psalm 2-7, which we studied when we were in in, uh, our study in Ephesians on Sunday morning, where at the end, towards the end of the psalm, we have this statement by the Messiah. He's the one who was speaking. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord, that is Yahweh, God the Father, has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is the de- declaration of the sonship of the Messiah. And it is being reiterated by the Father in these two events in the life of Christ at the baptism by John the Baptist and by the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is a declaration. It means to count or to recount a decree, something that has been said. And ultimately this goes back, this decree goes back to the Davidic covenant where God promised David a son who would sit on his throne forever. And it connects the dots here. This You can't fully comprehend Psalm 2-7 without understanding 2 Samuel seven fourteen and following in the Davidic covenant, which we spent a lot of time studying a year ago. It takes us back to that verse where the father says, I will be his father, this descendant, this seed of David. That term goes all the way back to the seed of the woman in uh, Genesis chapter 3. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And there is a, uh, a distance, a time difference between the uh, presentation of Jesus as the Messiah and his coronation, just as there was with David. David is anointed in 1 Samuel 16, 12 to 13, but it's four, five, six, maybe seven years before he is actually crowned king of Judah in Hebron, and then it's a few years later before he's crowned king of all the tribes in, in Jerusalem. So this idea is that uh, he has his sonship is declared by the Father. And so Peter is saying, we heard this. This was a fulfillment of messianic prophecy from the, from the Old Testament. We heard this voice that came from heaven. What's interesting is this shows that there is a role for empiricism, just as there is for rationalism, in the Scripture. But it's under the authority of God. Revelation precedes uh, experience. John does the same thing in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Now, look at what happens here. John starts off his epistle saying, we're telling you what we heard, saw, felt, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, meaning we the apostles, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, these are the senses which we, with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled touch concerning the message or the word of life. 
the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with you. So it's, it is the role of empiricism. What we've seen, what we've heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. You may enter into the partnership of the Great Commission with us because before that you have partnership with God. That's the idea in fellowship. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then you get to the application of it. That's not just a nice theological truth about the hypostatic union and salvation and the incarnation. It is for the purpose that we might have full joy. The joy that God has, the perfect happiness that God has because he's provided all of this. That if we learn to think like God thinks and live like God wants us to live, then the effect of that is that we begin to experience and share in this joy that has been given to us. So back to Peter. Peter goes on to say, and so we have this prophetic word confirmed. The prophetic word comes first. The absolute truth of God's revelation comes first, and then there's a confirmation of that, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And I pointed out last time that this language of the dawning of the day, the coming of light, and the morning star rising in your hearts, this is all language related to the beginning of the kingdom. And that this is looking forward to the fact that just as they, they got those three guys on the Mount of Transfiguration saw the glory of Jesus and had a foretaste of the kingdom, just a glimpse, that they saw what will come eventually. Malachi 4.2 says, which the last chapter of Malachi, this is the last thing recorded in the Old Testament. It includes a prophecy about Elijah coming before the Messiah, and it's the last thing you read before God goes silent for 400 years. And the next thing you hear is John the Baptist, who is in the pattern of Elijah announcing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So at the end of the Old Testament, the last uh, revelation in Malachi 4.2, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, that is not S-O-N, but S-U-N as it is in the Hebrew, which is the illumination that righteousness brings us, with healing in his wings, that's part of the messianic kingdom, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. This language of the star also goes back to the prophecy of Balaam from Numbers 24:17. A star shall come forth from Jacob. Jacob is the tribe that will rule. A scepter, that is the symbol of a reign, shall rise out of Israel. The scepter as the symbol for a reign is put for the ruler, the one who reigns. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. This is the background for understanding the language in Luke 1, 78. I have the New King James Version, which says, uh, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high was visited us. Now, day spring, as I pointed out, that's an antiquated word. Luke 1, 78 in the 
Holman Christian uh, Standard Bible set, translates it to dawn from on high will visit. The light is going to come. We're in, in the time before the dawn, but when the sun comes and establishes kingdom, then the light will be here. Okay, that's our review. And what we're going to go next is because there's about four passages, I think, that are crucial for the foundation for understanding the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture. And so we're just going to look at that briefly and starting uh, with the verse that we have here in First P- in Second Peter, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, begins in the middle of a sentence, knowing this, so we're going to see that it's a causal participle because we know something, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, that always bothered me the way that that was translated in the King James because it makes it sound like it's talking about hermeneutics and it's not. It's talking about the origin of the Scripture, not the interpretation of the Scripture. For prophecy never came by the will of man. See, that's where you realize it's talking about where does it come from, where does it originate, not, not what does it mean. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to clean that translation up a little bit as we go along. So it starts off knowing this first. It's a causal participle because we know this first. First here means first in terms of being foundational, first in terms of priority. This is where we start. We start with the authority of the Word of God. That's where we know truth. There's revelation from God, so there's a presupposition of God as the creator, as as the revealer. This is where we start. So protos here has this idea of something that is foundational. It's the starting point. And our starting point is the Scripture, because that's what informs us of of truth. That, and it's it's in English, it's that no prophecy of Scripture is of any uh, private interpretation, and and that's really not a good way of of uh, of translating this. So we have to look at this in terms of of the Greek. So literally, I've translated it down at the bottom. It doesn't say no prophecy of Scripture. It says every prophecy of Scripture does not originate. So they've cleaned it up. It reads better in English that no prophecy of Scripture is. It's an absolute statement. Every prophecy of Scripture, because he's talking about the Old Testament here primarily, it originates from God. That's why it's prophetic. Prophetic doesn't necessarily mean that it is talking about the future. It is talking about that which is revealed from God and not knowable in in any other way. Every prophecy of Scripture does not originate. The word there um, has to do with something that originates or comes into existence. And this is not a word that that talks about something that just, just happens. But every prophecy of Scripture does not originate or does not derive or does not come into being from its own explanation or interpretation. I think the best way to paraphrase this is every prophecy of Scripture doesn't originate from a person's own opinion. Or you can 
change it around and say no prophecy of Scripture originates from anyone's personal opinion. It's not the personal opinion of the prophets. And that makes sense once you go into the next verse that explains it with the, the four there, explains the meaning of this, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Now it makes a lot more sense. He's talking about the origination of the content of Scripture, not the interpretation or meaning of Scripture. For prophecy, that is a term for all of the Old Testament, all of the Scripture, never originated, never came into existence by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now what's interesting here is that never came, in, in, that's translated, the word never came here is the verb pharaoh which means to bring or to carry. So no prophecy ever was brought along or carried along is a better way, of, of I think, of translating that as I have in the bottom of the slide down here. So this bottom uh, verse here is, is how I've translated this. Uh, for prophecy never uh, was never carried along by the will of man. It doesn't originate with man. But holy men of God... This is the New King James. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved. See, the word moved is the same verb, but it's a participle. Uh, they spoke when they were moved, I think is a, is a better way of translating that participle or, or uh, by means of being carried along, one or the other. Um, the NET translation does a fairly good job there. I've improved it a little bit in my translation. The NET translates it, for no prophecy was ever born of human in impulses, but rather men carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, see, they translated Pharaoh as born here, but since it's Pharaoh here and Pharaoh here, it should have been translated with the same English words to show the connection that no prophecy was ever carried along by human impulse. That's, that's what I, why I translated this way in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever carried along by the will of man. It didn't originate with man, and man didn't develop it. It was, it was not carried along by the will of man, but men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is the originator of the content of Scripture. Now, we learn what Pharaoh means, and it's used in Acts 27, 17. This is when Paul is dealing with his and relating the shipwreck, uh, and Luke is describing the shipwreck uh, 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 when Paul is going on the way to Rome, and they, they get into a storm, and then they are just driven along by the winds, and they... They have no control of their destiny. Some of you may have experienced that in your life where you know that God's just driving you along somewhere and you don't know where you're going, so you just have to relax and, and uh, let God take control. That's sort of the idea. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail They took this, they, they, and they're just driven by the currents, by the water. They're just driven along. They're just carried along. That's the idea in Pharaoh. So 
It's not that men are carried along by their own ideas, but they're carried along by God the Holy Spirit. So this gets us into some specifics about interpretation and, I mean, excuse me, inspiration and infallibility. And I, we're going to develop that doctrinally, but I'm going to wait until we come back after the conference before we get into developing uh, that important uh, teaching from Scripture. Father, we thank you for the fact that we know truth, and we're learning truth, and there is truth. There are absolutes, there are absolute certainty, absolutes about ultimate reality, absolutes about knowledge, how to know what we know, limitations of knowledge, uh, absolutes about, about morals, ethics, law, absolutes about beauty, and that we need to think about these things. And that we need to probe the scriptures and probe reality, thinking in terms of everything is your creation, designed by you for ultimate purpose. And that we are designed by you to learn and to know and to understand, comprehend your creation. And all of this is ultimately designed in our being able to serve you and to glorify you, that is, showing that you are the most important person in reality. That life apart from you is really death. Alienation from you is spiritual separation, makes life meaningless, hopeless. But only when we are with you do we have reality. Do we have, and can we have real joy, the stability and contentment with life. Father, open up our eyes of our souls that we can understand this and apply it in Christ's name. Amen.